0: All right, another special episode of the Science and Spirituality podcast coming your way. We have a special guest this week. Her name is Dr. Kristen Neff, and she is currently an Associate Professor of Educational Psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. She is a pioneer in the field of self-compassion research, conducting the first empirical studies on self-compassion almost 20 years ago. In addition to writing numerous academic articles and book chapters on the topic, she is the author of the book, Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself. In conjunction with her colleague, Dr. Chris Germer, she has developed an empirically supported training program called Mindful Self-Compassion, which is taught by thousands of teachers worldwide. They co-authored the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook and teaching the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, a guide for professionals. Her newest work focuses on how to balance self-acceptance with the courage to make needed change. In June 2021, she will publish Fierce Self-Compassion, how women can harness kindness to speak up, claim their power and thrive. So we had a great conversation with Dr. Kristen, and we hope you guys enjoy it. Welcome to the Science and Spirituality Podcast, where we dive deep into universal spiritual principles and ground them in modern science. My name is Chris Carton. And my name is Kevin Carton. And we are committed to simplifying
1: the spiritual side of success for you with easy to understand scientific research so you can walk away with practical tools to create radical transformations in your life. Let's get started. So Dr. Kristen, I'm so happy to have you here. And Chris and I are both happy to have you here uh, on the podcast. So welcome. And I'm looking forward to this conversation.
2: Oh, thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks.
1: hmm so let's begin with just, just you sharing your story of like how you got into this work, like how you got into studying self-compassion and yeah, just like tell us your story first before we get into anything else.
2: Right, okay. So it actually started my last year of graduate school, which was um, 1995 and I was going to um, University of California, at Berkeley. And basically, I was a basket case, right? My life was a mess. I had just gotten a th- through a divorce, and it was a really messy divorce. And I was feeling a lot of stress—not so much about what I get my PhD, but you know, what I get a job after spending so many years of my life. There was absolutely no guarantees. And so I'd heard that mindfulness meditation was good for stress. So there was actually—it was Berkeley, right? So there was actually a meditation group right down the street from where I lived. And so I went to learn mindfulness meditation, but the woman running the group talked that very first night about the importance of self-compassion, you know, and it was a Buddhist group and I knew that Buddhists were into compassion, but it's funny, I never even really thought about self-compassion before, you know, Mm -hmm. the idea that you can turn that lens of compassion and understanding and caring inward as well as outward. So um, I started trying to be more supportive toward myself during this difficult time um, and I was just blown away by the immediate difference it made in my ability to cope with everything that was happening. So um, then, then I did get a real job luckily at University of Texas at Austin and I decided to conduct research on it. So and, and it's not a new idea. I mean I didn't come up with the idea and, and similar to ideas of like unconditional positive self-regard that other humanistic mm-hmm. psychologists had talked about. But at that point, no one had actually measured this thing called self-compassion. So that was my contribution, published it back in 2003. And and now there's like, well, going on almost 4,000 studies It's mm-hmm. huge, 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 the number. Yeah. Nice.
0: Yeah. It's interesting that we, we've, uh, we, we just recorded an episode recently um, about having a, like a sense of life purpose and how that helps Uh with people's health. And it's just interesting that all of these different types of maybe more like ethereal things that historically have been harder to measure are being studied more and more now and how they're relating to health. And it's really cool to see that trajectory of, of things that are being studied now, which are super important, honestly.
2: Yeah, no, they are. They are. And also just, I have to say from someone who's been blessed to have like a real calling in life, you know, I didn't necessarily choose it. It just came to me. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's so wonderful to be able to say, yeah, I've got a purpose to my life. That's
0: really, it's really nice. Yeah. And there's studies to back that up that it actually makes you healthier. So that's good. (laughs) Um, So I wanted to ask uh, just the the next question here Um, in your work, you talk about the difference between self-compassion and self-esteem. And that was like a nuanced thing when I was hearing you talk about that for the first time. So I just want to know if you can explain that to our listeners, what the difference is, because some people might think it's similar, or some people might think that self-esteem is actually better or have a maybe a misconception of what that actually means.
2: Yeah, so self-esteem, it's related to self-compassion, but um, it's also very different. And by the way, so after I did my, um, did my uh, PhD, I did two years of postdoctoral study, with one of the country's leading researchers on self-esteem, which is also Mm. kind of what led me to look at self-compassion as an alternative to self-esteem. So how do you you define self-esteem? Well, it's a judgment or an evaluation of self-worth, right? I'm a good person, I'm a bad person, I'm somewhere in between. Uh, And there's nothing wrong with having high self-esteem. In fact, it's much better to to feel worthy than unworthy. You know, you're gonna have better mental and psychological health. Uh, the problem is how, how do you get your high self-esteem? So there are healthy and unhealthy ways to have this positive evaluation of self-worth. For most people, um, that, that sense of self-worth is comparative. right? In other words, we feel good about ourselves when we, when we feel special and above average. If someone says your average is an insult, mm-hmm. right? So we're always needing to be above average, slightly better than other people to feel good about ourselves and that leads to a process of social comparison uh, that can have really nasty consequences for instance we know one of the reasons young kids start to bully other kids is to boost their self esteem so they can feel like the cool powerful one in comparison to that you know weird nerdy kid they're picking on so um, and that so that's the problem uh, also for instance narcissism one, some people take it to a real extreme they they need to feel so superior to others that they, you know they're grandiose or they can't they can't admit any sort of criticism or flaw in their own personality because they have to protect their self-esteem uh, that's not healthy and I'll, probably one of the biggest problems with self-esteem is it tends to be contingent mm-hmm. it's contingent you, the three biggest areas is a social approval and this isn't like how much your mother likes you or your best friends like you it's like other people in, the, in my workplace or, mm. you know, my Instagram followers or other kids at school. This kind of very vague, um, you know, um, unclear sense of am I popular or not? Am I successful or not? So, yeah. And that, that has problems. Uh, perceived attractiveness is actually the number one, especially for women, domain in which we invest our self-esteem. If we like the way we look, we feel good about ourselves. If we don't like the way we look, we feel bad about ourselves.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: And then also successful performance, whether it's sports or business or whatever is important to you. And so, self-esteem is kind of a fair-weather friend, right? It's good for you in the good time, it's there for you in the good times, but it deserts you when you need it most. Mm. Self-compassion, on the other hand, is really the polar opposite. It's a source of unconditional self-worth. It's predicated on um, the idea of suffering and imperfection, right? Compassion, you know, to suffer with. It's the idea that when I'm when I've failed or I've made a mistake or things are difficult or not going well in my life. I can still be kind and supportive and there for myself. And so what we know from the research is, for instance, um, the self-worth that's linked to uh, judgments of self-esteem are unstable. They go up and down, whereas with self-compassion, they're much more stable over time. Mm. You don't need to be better than anyone else to have self-compassion. You just need to be a flawed human being like everyone else (laughs) who's much more doable. So yeah, when I first actually introduced the construct to the field of self-compassion, I, I introduced it as an alternative to self-esteem, because at the time there was a lot of blowback against self-esteem, mm, uh, yeah. and the research really upholds that it's a, you know, you might say it's a form of self-esteem, but it's, sure. Unconditional, sure. it's an unconditional yeah. source of self-worth as opposed to a judgment or evaluation. Mm.
0: So for okay. almost for, for like self esteem, you almost have to compare yourself to others and see where you're either better or worse. Whereas self compassion, you look for you're like I'm flawed and so is everyone else. So there's more connection there with that.
2: Right, right. So and again, you might say the sense of they're both forms of self worth, but one <laughs> t- self esteem typically you know, I like myself is based either on social comparison or success and valued domains, mm-hmm. whereas self-compassion is it's only predicated on being a flawed human being. So it's much more stable and unconditional. Gotcha. Mm-hmm.
1: And that's interesting The the three main ways you shared about how self-esteem is a problem. It's interesting yeah. because the, in my own study of just personal development, psychology, and just even spiritual development, it's like, it's very common to think or hear is like, just compare yourself to yourself just yesterday or a week ago, right? Like that's like to build your own self-esteem, but the ways you describe self-esteem, the problems, it seems like it's so pervasive. It's like, is it even possible to uh, completely shut those things out? Like, I, I don't think it is that it's just that we're, we're, that's, we're, like, we're being bombarded with those that information every day. So if we focus on self-esteem alone, it seems like there is just a pitfall no matter what.
2: Right. And there also could be a real um, pitfall in comparing yourself to your past. I mean, here you know, mm. I'm a woman menopause, right? If I compare myself sure. to my twenty-five year old, so it's not a comparison, isn't gonna come out so good, at least in, mm. in certain some areas. Yeah. So it's really not about judgment at all. It's just about, mm. you know, I'm a I'm a human being who breathes, who's conscious, who's doing the best they can, and therefore that's where my sense of self-worth comes. I don't need to compare myself to anything.
1: Yeah, even yeah. past self.
2: Even past That's self. Almost awesome. especially yep. past self because then mm. that sets us up for striving, always having to do better, yep. not being able to fail or have, you know, backs backslides, which we all do. Yep. Um, so you can just throw out the comparison altogether. You don't need it. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: But now people say, p- people immediately say, "Oh, but isn't that mean? I'm going to like be complacent and I'm not going to yeah. try to get better." But it actually it doesn't because you still want you want to be the best you can be, but not because you're un- inadequate if you aren't or because mm-hmm. you're unworthy if you aren't, but simply because you care. Just like a yeah. child, you know, you love your child, whether or not they go to that Ivy League school, you know, you want them, if, 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 you know, if you want them to go to college, it's going to make them happy, but your love isn't contingent on it. Their worth isn't contingent on it. Mm. And it's the same thing with ourselves. Our worth is unconditional. Um, although of course we still want the best for ourselves, just like yeah. we want the best for our children because we care.
0: Yeah. yeah. What what do you think are some of the, and I don't know if you've done research on this, but the biggest pitfalls that people face when they're trying to develop self-compassion for themselves? Because I feel like a lot of people might be even difficult to have that sense of self-compassion or just where to start. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, so a lot of these are myths about self-compassion and actually it was not my research, but a colleague, I found that actually belief that it will undermine your motivation is the number one block to self-compassion that really stands in people's way, especially in kind of our Western, you know, very driven society. The other things stand in the way, for instance, especially for women, but for everyone, but especially women, the idea that it's selfish. Right. We think that if we give more compassion to ourselves, that means we'll have less compassion available to give to others. Yep. But of course, it doesn't work that way, right? The more resources you give yourself, the more resources you have available to give to others. Yep. Especially in terms of reducing burnout and exhaustion, things like that. Um, some people think it means self-indulgence, that that being kind to yourself means just giving yourself something pleasant, even if that something pleasant harms you in the long run. And what they forget is that concern with the alleviation of suffering means you're always focused on health and well-being. So even if something's unpleasant in the short term, like maybe eating the right food or exercising, you're gonna do it because it's healthy in the long run, right? And then then another big block, um, and I must say this, this affects everyone maybe a little bit more men, is the belief that it's gonna weaken you. Mm
3: -hmm. Uh,
2: And I have to say that's partly because compassion is historically part of the female gender role And women are accorded less power in society. Mm -hmm. So there's this idea that if I'm compassionate, I'm going to be soft, I'm going to be weak. Um, And those are the people that I would say really don't understand the fierce side of self-compassion that I've been talking about more explicitly lately, partly because Mm -hmm. of this misconception, the idea and, and the research really supports this. It makes you incredibly strong, incredibly resilient and allows you to speak up. Um, it it actually um, provides a lot of strength when times are difficult. Mm.
3: So
2: and, and so those so those are uh, cultural reasons, and there's also some physiological reasons why it's hard. Do you want to mm. hear about those? Yes, yes, hundred percent. Okay. So most people are a lot more compassionate and supportive to other people than themselves, especially people they care about, you know, their children or their friends, um, and a lot more self-critical. And I think there is some biological evolutionary reason for that in that um, when most people criticize themselves, they're tapping into the body's threat defense system. They're releasing cortisol, they're attacking themselves. It's kind of like the classic fight, flight, or freeze response. Um, And that system comes online because when we look at ourselves and we feel inadequate, or we've made a mistake or things are really difficult, we go into threat defense mode. So the system comes on and so we go into fight mode, but sometimes there's no one to fight except ourselves because we're the one who made the mistake. So we criticize ourselves, we beat ourselves up thinking that's gonna make us safe, it's gonna control the situation, we'll prevent ourselves from doing it again. Or we flee into shame, we imagine all these people judging us and we withdraw into shame as a kind of way of protecting ourselves against the judgments of others. Or we freeze and get stuck into rumination like, you know, maybe if I just like freeze and are stuck, maybe the problem will go away. Now, when your best friend has a problem, like they get fired from their job or they failed at something, you don't feel so immediately threatened. So you're more able to tap into the system that actually evolved more in these situations, which is the care system. So as mammals, we have another safety system and that's the care system. This is the system that for mammals, um, prods the parents to take care of the infants and that prods the infants to stay safe next to the parents, right? Because there's a long developmental period for mammals For human beings it's by far the longest. It's like 25 to 30 years before the brain stops growing. So we've got a very uh, very, very well-developed care system. So when we feel connected to others, when we feel loved by others, when we feel, you know, um, especially like physical touch, all those signals of affiliation and belonging, then we feel safe. And we kind of naturally do that for those we care about. You might need to reach out, touch your shoulder. We might say, hey, it's okay, I care about you. Um, but we're more used to doing that for others. And so what we're doing with self-compassion is we're kind of doing a little hack in that we're tapping into the system that actually evolved to care for others. And we're turning it inward and using it to care for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it works. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the thing. It may not be as instinctual. It may feel a little weird at first. and We may have to practice it a little bit. But pretty soon it becomes habit and it doesn't feel so weird. And, yeah. and we don't really know the difference. Like with touch and and language, I mean, it's not that we don't know the difference, but it pretty much operates in a very similar way. So mm-hmm. we're giving ourselves that care, warmth, and support that we might naturally give to a friend or a loved one.
0: Yeah. Mm. The the like the self-criticism that we tend to turn back onto ourselves, is that like a a new higher brain function, like kind of a social construct thing or is that, did that have some evolutionary value to it at some point? And we're just kind of trying to hijack that and make it beneficial.
2: Uh, well, it certainly has a lot of evolutionary value, right? So mm. to the extent that, well, it can save you from external dangers, absolutely, right? Yeah,
0: that I understand. Yeah, key one. yeah. Um,
2: But yeah, probably even internal dangers, right? So, it, it, So it kind of works, it yields short-term compliance. So if you're really hard on yourself, maybe you won't break the social rules and won't be punished, for instance. And and society often like encourages that they want us to be hard on ourselves so we don't break the rules, right? And so it's a little more, you might say, a little more complex to try not to break the rules because you care about yourself and others, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Maybe it maybe doesn't come so easily. Um, it's not necessarily encouraged by our society, but it, but it can be done. But yeah, so there's there's function with self-criticism. We don't want to beat ourselves up for beating ourselves up, right? It has it serves a function. It's a way of keeping ourselves safe. It's just that it's not nearly as effective as regulating our emotions and our behavior through care.
0: Mm, right.
1: So, what would you say is like a, a simple step? Because I know Chris, when we started this whole question, which is like, how does someone start? Because I know you said it's like it could feel uncomfortable, could be yeah. challenging to begin. So, what what would be your recommendation and how someone can start?
2: Well, the very first thing is just to bring awareness to how do you relate to yourself? So, when you're struggling, again, this could be either a personal failure, feeling inadequate, or like the pandemic hits or something difficult happens in your life. You can just start noticing, you know, well, how do you relate to yourself? What's your emotional tone towards yourself? Are you supportive? Are you understanding? Are you encouraging? Or are you shaming? Are you critical? Are you, you know, if you call yourself names or maybe you're just really cold to yourself Like you almost ignore your own needs. Some people do that. Uh, And then you can ask yourself, what would happen if I did this to a very good friend I cared about?
0: Mm. Imagine a friend Mm, called you up and said,
2: hey, Kevin, I really need to talk. I'm really upset. And it's like, you you just ignore them. I don't have time for this right now. I need to focus. Thinking that's mm. going to help them, but that's probably not going to help them, right? Yeah, we, we do that to ourselves all the time.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So just ask, well, what would happen if I did this to a friend I cared about? And if you know, if you don't, if you think the results wouldn't be so good, you might think, well, what would I say? And then simply just try it out with yourself. And this mm. can be language, it could be internal tone of voice, it can be touch. We, we really recommend touch because it kind of bypasses. You know, the verbal response, it goes straight to the physiology. You're, act- you're actually activating your parasympathetic nervous system, reducing cortisol, increasing heart rate variability, things like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, yeah. I, really the only way you'll be convinced is if you try it out. But if you're a science nerd, and I'm sure some of your listeners are, you could also go to my website, selfcompassion.org. And I have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of studies, the original PDFs on my website so you don't have to take anyone's Mm -hmm. word for it either you can look at the research
0: awesome yeah and i think and i think a a lot of people can relate to that though i mean even personally in my life like i've noticed that i'm definitely super self-critical on myself for for certain things, and then when my girlfriend, for example, is feeling really sad and upset, like I'm just so quick to comfort and and everything, and it's just that that dynamic is so interesting because and then it's the vice versa. It's like when I'm super self critical, she's the one that's comforting me, and it's like it's you you can see that it works. It's just it's it's that awareness of am I going to turn that back onto myself when I'm next time I'm self critical.
2: Right, right. And what's useful is to tap into the, to remind yourself that the reason you're being self-critical is that you're trying to help yourself. I mean, ironically, Mm. the reason you're beating yourself up is because you care. Yeah. (laughs) And so you can just think, well, what's a more effective way to care for myself? And again, it doesn't mean letting yourself off the hook. The research shows very clearly that people are more able to take responsibility when they're compassionate. It's like, okay, yeah, I really messed up. Well, you can can admit that because it's only human to mess up. But because you care, you're going to want to repair the mistake and do things better next time.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. It's actually a good segue into the next question that I had um, about, you have this idea about the yin and yang of self-compassion. Yes. And that that interests me a lot because I'm a Chinese medicine practitioner and acupuncturist. Yes. Yeah. And um, so I just wanted you to talk about that a little bit, because when I read it, I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. But I just kind of wanted to get your detailed explanation of what that actually means, because I think that's really important when it comes to self-compassion.
2: Yes. Yes. So um, the yin and yin and yang energies correspond to what I'm calling fierce and tender self-compassion. Right. So, um, as you know, I don't need to tell you, but in Chinese philosophy and this this duality is it plays out in gender roles. It plays out in like. So many realms is basic um, duality between the yin energy, which is more gentle, soft, nurturing, yielding, accepting, Mm. and the yang energy, which is more hard, forceful, energetic, you know, gets things done. Um, And that really maps onto what I'm calling fierce and tender self-compassion. So the tender self-compassion is like the yin energy. It's accepting, it's nurturing, it's what allows us to be with ourselves as we are with unconditional self-acceptance um and and the fear self-compassion is more like the young energy it's how do we alleviate suffering well sometimes it's through acceptance but when it comes to our behaviors or situations we don't necessarily want to accept that might actually make things worse right we want to change maybe our behaviors by motivating change or change our situations. stand up for ourselves draw boundaries fight against injustice or you know actually do things to meet our needs and Mm -hmm. um and by the way, this also maps into gender roles, gender role socialization, which the main dichotomy is agentic and communal gender roles. It's almost exactly like yin and yang. So mm-hmm. women are socialized to be communal, tender, yin, soft, gentle, nurturing. Um, agentic, men are socialized to be agentic, which is like yang or fierce self-compassion, take action, do stuff. And this is a problem because mm-hmm. as we know from the Chinese philosophy perspective, you need both. Right. And in yeah. fact, ill health is kind of defined by being an imbalance between yin and yang. And yet we're like building the imbalance into the system by saying women aren't allowed to be too young. We aren't allowed to be too fierce. We don't like women who are too competent or who get angry, God forbid. And we don't like men who are too tender or soft or gentle or yielding. And so we're kind of ill health is built into the system of gender role socialization. Mm-hmm. And that's partly why I, I, my new book, which is Fierce Self-Compassion, really for a woman, is because, you know, everyone needs balance, but the way men are in balance is a little bit different. They need a little mm-hmm. more of that yin tender energy and women need a little more of that yang fierce energy. Um, mm-hmm. But, but, but I'm, I'm really curious. I mean, it's interesting, Chris, that you, you're familiar with this idea because I'm not, I'm not an expert in Chinese philosophy. So I'm kind of using it as a, as a metaphor. And I'm sure there's a lot more elaborate detail that would make sense. But did that make sense to you?
0: No, yeah, 100%. And especially what you said about that, like, yin can't exist without yang, and yang can't exist without yin. And there's a little piece of each inside of like each other exactly so and and it's and there's always like an ebb and flow too like i know the the traditional like taiji symbol which yes. that looks like the half moon yes. um, my professors would always say that it's not static it's constantly moving and evolving and changing and so as you practice certain things you'll get a sense of like what's more in balance and what's not and you work right. with that
2: exactly so no that, lot- that was a
0: great analogy yeah
2: a lot of the practices um, that I include in my book are all about trying to attain balance. So I've I've got Mm -hmm. this breathing yin and yang practice where you use the um, the in-breath to kind of activate the yang, the out-breath to relax and add the yin and to really invite integration because they're so split off and especially in our culture. And I have to say, it harms men just as much as it harms women. I mean, it also it privileges men in some ways because they get more have more power and the resources. So that's a benefit. But in terms of emotional harm, you know, what the research shows is the ability to accept ourselves and to hold to painful situations without being overwhelmed by them. It's so important for mental well-being. And men are really denied that resource because they're mm-hmm. told that you know oh they are made fun of if they try to be sensitive or accept things as they are and that really is you know as a mother of a boy that you know it har- it har- harms men just as much as it harms women everyone mm-hmm. and, but yeah. but and, but balance doesn't mean it's going to look the same for everyone it's not like we're all yeah. going to be androgynous everyone look the same every single person will have their own unique expression of these yin and yang energies but it will be what's natural as opposed to what's constricted by society.
0: Mm. Yeah. And a lot of times I feel like those constrictions are unconscious for a lot of people as well. Yes. Like they'll, they'll, you know, when you explain all this stuff, it's like, oh, that makes sense. But there's still like times for me where I'll have like an issue let's say like releasing emotion and crying and until my girlfriend or someone around me that i care about tells me oh like maybe you're afraid to let this go because blah 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 like i don't i'm unconscious to it unless someone tells me so i feel like there's a lot of that unconsciousness in society as well where they like these things are happening but we don't realize that they're happening because of how the, the the society has been set up and like you said awareness is the first step to break down those barriers and to bring more balance
2: it is And for women, it can be the opposite. For instance, women often are are afraid to say no to people Mm
0: -hmm. because,
2: you know, they're afraid that people will judge them if they say no. And we're socialized to do that. You know, partly that's because well, who does that benefit? The fact that women say yes to everyone else's (laughs) needs. But on top of that, you know, it's like this unconscious fear, like wanting to be a nice person. And by looking at that, doesn't mean you can't be a nice person, but you don't want to be a doormat either. Right, and so you've gotta be able to ask yourself, well, why am I doing this? Is this authentic for me? Or am I doing it because you know I know that I'll, I th- I'm afraid i will be judged or maybe I even will be judged. That's why I talk about the personal as political because when you, when you really invite these two energies within yourself, you are kind of going against some of these social norms and there may be a little blowback for that. So, you could, but, so what happens is you're less dependent on other people's approval Mm. As you have more of this unconditional source of self-worth and what that gives you and what, what research really shows is self-compassion allows you to be authentic. Mm-hmm. It allows you to be your true self. You aren't so worried about what other people say, which is real freedom.
0: Mm. That's a good point. I mean, I was just thinking about just even, cause we talk about a lot on this podcast and Kevin and I both in our stories, like we quit, Um, certain uh, careers that weren't serving us to do what we would really love. And that was a lot of that was going against the norm of friends, society, like family, a lot of times. And so, um, and I don't think I was realizing at the time, but I think I did practice a lot of self-compassion during those times. And that practice of self-compassion actually helped me, like you said, with that freedom, because I didn't rely so much on what other people thought of me. Mm -hmm. i more thought about what i thought about myself and that's like you said true freedom because it gives you the freedom then to make decisions because even if you make a mistake it's like you're you're answering to yourself it's like can i forgive myself for this like can i feel good about this anyway and move forward and then that gives you the freedom to take more risks and make more you know decisions
2: exactly i mean the thing about self-compassion and this is key it actually allows you to learn from your mistakes i mean Who said we weren't supposed to make mistakes? That's the way we learn. Everyone says failure is our best teacher. We know that it's almost a truism. And yet we don't allow ourselves to fail, which means we can't learn from our failures because when we're shaming ourselves, we actually can't learn. Shame shuts down our ability to learn,
3: Mm.
2: you know? So we really need to be able to take risks and fail and try again and self-compassion. And again, the research really shows this, it facilitates our ability to learn from our failures because it's okay to fail, makes sense.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a good point there too. Just thinking, tying that into the nervous system, how you were talking about before. Like, if we're so self-critical on ourselves, like that yeah. sympathetic nervous system is going to be activated, and there's like neuroplasticity is not going to work. Like, you're not going to be able to learn new behaviors and have memory for those new behaviors. Exactly. You're probably and just per- going to be and- continuously stuck in cycles.
2: And per- and performance anxiety actually undermines your ability to do your best. There's a lot of there's a lot of reasons why it's actually not healthy for you. It's not it's not as effective as so again it works as a motivator kinda but it's got all these downsides that actually undermine its efficacy in the long run. Mm
1: -hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. And one, I actually have another question for you that goes off of that. Cause all this, again, like what Chris, you were saying is like, it makes sense. Right. And even Kristen, you were saying, it's like, yes, like people get it. And I know we, we talked briefly before about like how can people practice self-compassion starting, but like, is there anything that you can share that helps people get over this understanding, but not actually practicing it. Cause that I think is the issue, right? I was like, people can understand right. this well, but how do we actually practice it? I know, again, you have those handful of tips you already shared before, but is there anything else?
2: Yeah, well, so, you know, for some people, it does help to get a little training, right? So you can mm. take, oh, um, yeah. we've, we've developed, um, created the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion, which is a nonprofit, and you can take a lot of online training. So mm. if you commit to, like, taking a workshop or taking a course, yes. that's one thing that will get the ball rolling. Mm-hmm. We also have, like, you can take the, the, the eight-week Mindful Self-Compassion program in workbook format. You can buy the workbook. So that's a way to do it. Nice. Um, or you put little stickers around your house or mm. you know things like this, but you, you do have to make some effort, right? If you, if yes. you make no effort, it's not going to change. But so really just helping yourself take that awareness. You can also take the self-compassion scale on my website if you want to know yeah. if this is something that's probably worth you spending time on.
1: Nice. Um, and get your book when and, it comes and out. Get my, <laughs> my book. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Which, great. when is the release date for that? I know it's sometime it's, soon. It's
2: June 15th, yeah. Yeah, okay. And so, so the book is called, It's the book is, this one is written for women. Um, not yeah. that, men can get a lot out of it, I think, because the practices work for both, and also I think it helps men understand the position of women. But if, you know... Um, I have four books actually. So I also have the mindful self-compassion workbook and my first book, self-compassion, then I have a professional manual for like therapists and stuff. Mm -hmm. So depending on what you need, there's a lot of choices. So if you also go to the center for mindful self-compassion, you'll find a lot of resources there as well.
1: Awesome. Yeah. A lot to, for people to take on, which is really important, I believe, Yeah. because it's a paradigm shift, what you're talking about.
2: It is. Yeah. So for about the first 10 years, I was mainly just researching the benefits of self-compassion. And the last 10 years, I mainly been interested in teaching people how to do it. Cause I'm convinced I don't need to convince yep. myself anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, I want to figure out how to help people do this. And here's the thing, it's not rocket science. Yep. It's like it's less complicated than meditation, for instance. Now meditation is a good way to develop self-compassion cause it's really good for like training new neural pathways, but it's not necessary. It's really just using the template that you already have. You know how to be a good friend. You know, when you talk to your girlfriend or your friend, like what to say, how to be supportive, how to use your voice, how to use your body language. We already know how to do it. That's the good news. Then I mean, you just have to, the, the slightly tricky bit is you have to give yourself permission to do it with yourself.
3: Mm-hmm. But
2: once you get over some of these fears and misconceptions and blocks that stand in the way, it's actually not that hard. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't take any extra time. It's yep. really a mindset it's not like something you have to do yeah yeah
0: and we we also talk about this a lot on the podcast like when we're talking about people trying new things and changing paradigms it's like it's going to be uncomfortable in the beginning most likely because it it's it's against what you're used to doing but then once you get past that series of the first few times of being uncomfortable like your body starts to get used to that as being the new norm that's and right. that's when things that. really can take off because then it'll just that'll be your unconscious go-to now instead of self-criticism it'll be self-compassion right and yeah okay.
2: And setting your intention, even if it's just like to start, like, you know, may, may begin to be a little bit more kind to myself. You know, you don't have to like jump into the full thing right away. You can, you can go slowly, take baby steps. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Incremental. That, yeah. That, that's such a good point too. Yeah. And then also have self-compassion for yourself along the way. If you fall off the bandwagon, <laughs> it's like,
2: a- no. Absolutely. Actually. <laughs> okay. So one of the good places to start is having compassion for the pain of self criticism. It's
0: mm-hmm.
3: kind
2: of just noticing, wow, this hurts. Yeah, mm-hmm. oh, you know, oh, anything I can do to help, right? You know, yeah. that's, that's that feeling yeah. of compassion that, that moves things along. Mm. Yeah,
1: can you actually just this popped in my mind again is something you shared before is like how it builds strength and resilience and just like this fierce self compassion because like when yeah. you even just saying those words like oh like you know giving yourself that kind of love like yeah. to me oh, like it just yeah. sparked in that's- my mind is like oh that's, that's- soft. You know? Yeah, so
2: so there's the tender self-compassion. So sure. The tender self-compassion, that's like the huh. Yeah. But your self-compassion is like, you've got this. I got your back. Mm. I'm here mm. for you. So for instance, let's say you need to talk to your boss, you need to ask for a raise because you're being underpaid. Yeah. In that situation, you don't want to just say, Oh, I'm being underpaid. You know, you yeah. want to say, hey, you know, this is not right. Yeah. You no, know, I need to stand up for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to go in there and again, be clear and be, be set my boundaries. And this is what I need. This is what's fair look at. This is my work that I've done, you know, and in that case, you might like, you know, so we often say, like, put a hand on your heart for tender self-compassion. you want to put a fist on your heart. Like I got mm. this, you know, some sort of empowering gesture.
1: Yeah. So mm-hmm. it does.
2: It does depend on, on the situation.
1: Sure. You know? Yeah. Awesome.
2: And we always need both. In, yep. in different mixes as well mm. but yeah so so that's why often the examples i use tend to go to the tender just kind of by instinct sure. which is which is why i wrote this whole book about fear self-compassion because it mm. does it feels really different tender self-compassion yeah. feels like loving connected presence if you look at the three components of self-compassion which are mindfulness common humanity and, and kindness it feels like loving connected presence Fear, self-compassion feels like brave, empowered clarity. Mm. Feels really different in your body, in your mind, but they're 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 both manifestations of care.
1: Mm-hmm. Awesome, yeah, Thank that's you really clarify that,
0: yeah, yeah, like definitely, and I like that's something that I still got to think about a little more too, because I like the, the the question that I had for you earlier about the, uh, and you actually answered it um, before we even asked it about the the self-compassion and th- that people fearing that that would breed complacency because yes. that's how that, that's how i feel sometimes like when i'm self compassionate towards myself i'm like i'm just allowing this behavior to continue right. so having that fear self compassion which is what you explained beautifully like that that makes a lot of sense to me like what's the next step after you do that yeah yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. so you want to accept yourself but not necessarily your behavior because mm. if your behavior is harming you then that's not compassion
0: right So separating yourself from the behavior Yes,
2: exactly. Mm. It's kind of like the difference between shame and guilt. What research shows is that shame, which is I am a bad person is not healthy, hardly at all. Um, But guilt, which is why I did something wrong, actually can can be healthy, can motivate us to say sorry, and to make amends and, Mm. you know, to do things differently. And if you look at them, and if you kind of partial out their shared variance, statistically, which you can do, self compassion is linked to shame free guilt positively but negatively linked to um, just guilt-free shame, right? So if you actually, if you separate, cause there's some overlap. If you separate mm-hmm. their, out their overlap, self-compassion can actually be positively linked to guilt. It's usually, it's, it's a small correlation, but in other words, guilt can be healthy. There's healthy guilt, mm. but that's all about the behavior. I did something bad. I feel so badly about it, but just cause I did something bad, doesn't mean that I'm bad.
1: Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. That's huge. Yeah, doesn't it mean? really is. Yeah. It- Makes me think of, uh, I mean, the title of our podcast, Science and Spirituality, like the spirit yeah. part of it is that we're not our behaviors. We're not That's this right. human body, this, even our thoughts is like, we're more than that.
2: That's right. And so
1: that is creating that separation, or not even separation, but the space. Space. It's like knowing who we really are and just what has happened in the behavior is so right. important.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, but, but I think what a lot of us do have a, a meta- well, not metaphor but an experience of that was with our children hopefully mm. not all parents do but i think most parents unconditionally love their children even mm. when their child like poops their pants or doesn't be wrong you know what i mean yeah. it's <laughs> like you don't love their poopy pants but you love them yeah you don't love it when they lie or get in trouble at school whatever it is you don't want to encourage that but you still love them mm. And so I think that's, you know, a context in which that idea of unconditional love while still being firm about the behavior mm-hmm. is, makes more, it's intuitive to us.
1: Yeah. yeah, that actually even just the word you just used reminded me of something I share with my clients is like when it comes to forgiveness, like forgiving ourselves yeah. is there's that firmness that is still needed. That, that doesn't allow like the, uh, that slippery yeah. slope of getting back to like, oh, like more criticism is like, oh, I did something wrong or
2: right.
1: some amends need to be made. It's like, there's a firmness to that, but then also yeah, having yeah. that compassion with
2: A it. commitment. Yeah, yeah, and also the thing about um, forgiveness, this is both for self and others,
1: mm. is
2: uh, some people use forgiveness as a form of what I like to call spiritual bypass. Like, I'm going to forgive myself or others because I don't want to feel the pain of what's happened.
3: Mm. so
2: with self-compassion you need both the fierce and the tender the mm. tender is what allows you to hold the pain of it and because it can be really painful when you've harmed someone mm. ouch or when someone's harmed you
3: ouch mm-hmm.
2: you need to open with the kind of yin tender energy to hold the pain of that mm. and then you need the fierce energy to commit to either yeah. not let it happen to you again draw your boundaries Yep. Or do not do it again if you've done it to someone else. You, you always you always need both. I mean, I feel like my book got almost really repetitive, but <laughs> you know, you, you, you every it. time you talk about it, it's, it's so funny. And maybe this, maybe you know this, Christopher. It's like our mind tends to think in dualisms, it's either mm-hmm. this or it's that. When the reality is it is this flow back and forth, we're always needing to remember the other side, and it's actually yeah. more complex. We, we gotta remember it because our brains like black and white, you know, they like being yeah. simple so
0: that's a good point yeah mm-hmm. cool i i mean is there anything else um um Kristen, that you want to bring up to our listeners that we may not have discussed or any like closing points that you'd like to make for to leave people with
2: um well maybe i'll just talk a little bit because you know i, I love the title of your podcast science mm-hmm. and spirituality I um, And self-compassion for me really is ultimate bringing together of the two, right? So there's definitely a scientific aspect to self-compassion. It can be measured, you know, both experimentally as well as through self-report. There's a lot of research on it. Um, it's not an airy-fairy idea. There's a lot of hard data that shows that it helps both physical and mental well-being. But if you take the practice of self-compassion far enough, it actually is a spiritual practice. So what you're heading toward, um, so the three components of self-compassion are mindfulness, sense of common humanity, it's not just me, we're all in this together, and kindness. And if you really take that far enough, it actually leads you to concepts like interbeing. So I learned about it in my Buddhist practice, right? And from that perspective, it actually is a spiritual practice, the Mm -hmm. practice of compassion and feeling one's interconnectedness with the larger whole of, of not taking oneself and one's ego so seriously, of being present with what is, which is mindfulness, as opposed to just being lost in our thoughts. So, um, f- you know, for me, it is both. It's a science, but it's also a spiritual practice. Mm. And so, that's one of the nice things about it. is similar to mindfulness. It's the same thing. It really has both in it, mm-hmm. which I find satisfying. <laughs>
1: mm. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, awesome. Well, thank you for sharing everything already. I mean, this is amazing, and I'm sure that there's so much more, of course, um, which obviously is in your book for for women women, but also as you said, like men can get a lot out of it as well. They
3: can. And, yeah.
1: and thank you for sharing also all of those resources. Um, I think that some, I, at least one person, I imagine listening to this can benefit from, or not can, but just probably will benefit from that already. Um, so we'll drop the links to those in right. like your your book, your website. Um, the other things you mentioned, like there's a lot that on your website that, that people can yes. find, um, yes. but is there anything else that you have to share um, or, any, or well, any other place they can find you? People can find you.
2: Yeah. So basically if you just Google self-compassion, you'll come to me. I got in so early, nice. you know, all the algorithms go mm-hmm. to me. And so you <laughs> start at the website. You can take the test. You can do some practices. You can just check it out. Look at the research. Great. Um, and that's really the best place to start, I think.
1: Okay. Well, Awesome. Well, thank you again. And it was great having you today. Same here. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that's it for today. So thanks for tuning in. We really hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. So any questions, any
0: comments, connect with us on Instagram personally at Kevin F. Carton or at Chris J. Carton or our podcast or Instagram page at Science and Spirituality Podcast. And if you feel guided to, the one thing that we do ask is for you to please rate the podcast and also leave a review. This way we can reach more people and in that way impact more lives. So with that, we'll see you on the next episode.